My name is Tim Leunig. I'm reader in economic history at the London School of Economics, and I also work for a think tank, Centre Forum. One of my areas of interest is in housing and land use more generally, and I served on the Barker Review Committee on Land Use Planning for Britain, and I used to be a columnist for Inside Housing magazine. I was asked to speak at this conference on what we could learn from Britain's experience. Britain was a very early industrialiser, and it urbanised at a very early point. Britain was the most urbanised country at any given level of development, so both in any particular date in the 19th century and at any given level of income, Britain was far and away more urbanised than its European neighbours. Nevertheless, taken as a whole, we find that the European experience is very similar to the recent experience in less developed countries. So we find, for example, at, say, $500 or $700 or $900 income, the number of people who were urbanised in Europe in the 19th century is very similar to the number of people who were urbanised in the post-war era in less developed countries. We'd get similar corresponding figures for agriculture or industry. So there's a lot that we can learn by looking at the past. We shouldn't, however, think that modern day is just some sort of replica of the past and that other countries look exactly like Britain did in 1840. One area that is different is demography. In the olden days, people used to breed a lot more and they used to die a lot more. Essentially, we knew a lot less about what killed people. We knew a lot less about things like clean water. And as a result, we had what's called a high pressure system. That's not nearly as true today. And one of the effects is that today's cities grow naturally whereas in the olden days, they didn't grow naturally, and they could only grow if they attracted migrants from outside. As a result, in the 19th century, at one point, 25% of people living in London were born in Ireland. The idea of the London Irish is very real and very important. Now, when we look back at Britain in that era, we find that some cities grew amazingly. London grew from 1 million to 6 million in the 19th century. That is completely unprecedented. No one in 1800 could ever have expected such an outcome. Other cities also grew dramatically. Liverpool and Manchester, for example, had only 100,000 people in 1800 and a million by 1900. That's a huge rate of growth and really was not expected. Other towns grew from nowhere. We think of the railway towns such as Crewe and Swindon, tiny villages before the railway era to large industrial cities by the end of the century. So we have a real heritage to look back on, and we can learn both from what went well and from what went badly. Now, if we think about uh, one of the major, major lessons is the sheer longevity of things we made. We still have lots of buildings from the Industrial Revolution. And indeed, since I'm sitting in Oxford, we know that there are many buildings that predate the Industrial Revolution. Once you've built something, you've got it for good. You can knock it down and rebuild it, but that's an expensive thing to do. And it's not something you want to do very often. So you need to be asking yourself whether the buildings can be adapted, either by changing the buildings themselves or changing what the buildings are used for. The same is true for things like roads and sewerage. You need to have a system that can be upgraded or which will stand the test of time. That's something Britain initially did very badly. We left everything to the market, the government is tiny in this era, and things like sewerage weren't properly provided. It was only after the so-called big stink in London that we got serious about sewerage and stopped just dumping it all in the Thames. We then built a fantastic sewerage system that has lasted us until this day and is only now having to be expanded and replaced. And the cost of expanding it now is very high, which again emphasises how important it is to get it right at the beginning. The same is true for transport. 
British cities were planned without any reference to the car, which was excusable because the car hadn't been invented. But we also came up with a rather preposterous notion that it was sensible to have more than a dozen railway terminals in London, rather than having a proper interchange that would clearly speed things up dramatically. We decided to put Heathrow due west of London, so that now 28% of the railway, sorry, 28% of aviation noise in Europe comes from Heathrow alone. No one would put Heathrow where it is now, but given where it is now, the people who want to fly have chosen to live in the vicinity of Heathrow, broadly defined, and they really don't want to trek out to Boris Island, located in an obscure place with no natural hinterland of passengers. So the optimal policy isn't now clear, whereas if we knew what we knew now, we could have put the, put the airport somewhere more sensible, namely to the north and slightly to the west of London. Newer cities can think through those things knowing something about the future because they can copy richer cities. They can look to Korea, they can look to Germany, they can look to Norway, to Britain, to Poland. Any country that's richer than them, they can look to. The second thing we need to think about is how to make cities livable. London is not the most livable city, although it's more livable than some. And one issue that countries have to think about is how to provide green space. After the Second World War, when we got serious about land use planning, we provided it as a green belt around London, which isn't really much use because most people don't live anywhere near the edge, they live in the centre. So yes, we have parks and commons, Richmond Park and the like, but better land use planning would put more spaces closer to people. The idea of having fingers coming in, as they have in Copenhagen, of green spaces stretching into the centre. Those things are very useful things like back gardens, even, frankly, large pavements. Uh, the former mayor of Bogotá, Enrique Peñaloza, has talked about how pavements are a close cousin of parks. They're places people who live in flats can sit and chat, where children can play. You need those things to make a livable city, and they're the sort of things that you do need government action to provide. Other externalities would include sewerage and disease, congestion and pollution. Those are things that do require government action. Sewerage and disease just has to be provided either for free or at very low cost because the externalities from not having it for everyone are so immense that there's a clear case for subsidy. In the case of congestion, we now know the only way to prevent congestion, whether you're talking about people walking, people driving or on public transport, is what are called graded flyovers, whereby one piece of traffic is there and the other is at a different level. As soon as you're trying to cross on the same level, you get congestion. For pollution, particularly from cars, the best thing is to have very straight roads so that you get a decent amount of breeze and it blows the stuff away. Once it's spread out over all the world, it's a very little problem. But in a narrow area, the particulates that you get from all sorts of internal combustion engines are pretty disastrous. And that's why straight roads have a huge, huge benefit. But the final thing to say is that Britain is pretty optimistic on housing. In the Industrial Revolution, we had no zoning laws, we had no building regulations, we basically didn't have anything. If you owned a plot of land, you could build on it. And we didn't have big companies buying huge tracts. We had individual builders building one house, another house, and so on, including some self-build. And these houses were not posh, but they were affordable. And if necessary, they were divided up. We think of the tenements, the slums of London. You can read your Dickens, and it will tell you how awful these conditions were but they were appropriately awful because the problem was not that the housing was poor, the problem is that the people were poor and poor people basically can only afford poor housing. 
And that's a very important lesson because it tells us as a country develops and the people get a bit richer, they can afford better housing. And so long as the housing is adaptable, the country will grow its way out of bad housing. And that's a very optimistic lesson for today's very poor countries because it tells us that people will spontaneously upgrade their housing or move to better housing as they get richer. And that's why policymakers really have to concentrate on what determines income directly and not what determines housing. A poor person in a decent house is still a poor person. A better off person in a bad house will soon become a better off person in a better house. And that's why policymakers must absolutely concentrate on growth. If you get that right, as East Asia has shown in the main, the rest will follow. If you don't get that right, nothing will follow whatever else you do.